How do you do? This is episode 9 of The Private Citizen, your weekly data privacy podcast for Thursday, the 26th of March, 2020. Today's topic, the opt-out illusion. Hey, my name is Fab and I'm reporting under coronavirus lockdown from my studio just off runway 33 of Hamburg International Airport. As always, hoping you're having a good day under the... How does everybody say it under these trying... In these trying times? Anyway, I'm, um, I'm happy you're tuning in. Um, what I'm doing today is... I kind of promised this. I will, I'll put out two episodes this week. Uh, this is why I'm off the normal Wednesday rotation for the podcast. Normally, I, you know, if you haven't listened, listened before, normally I release an episode every Wednesday. Um, but, you know, there was this... I had so much stuff going on with talking about coronavirus and its privacy implications that um, people are kind of saying, ah, I'd love if, you know, if you talk about something else. And I'm trying that today. Uh, I had a topic that I wanted to talk about um, a few weeks ago, which I pushed aside because of this coronavirus stuff. Um, and that's what we're, we're, gonna, we're doing today. I can't really completely promise you um, that I won't be... I, I mean, there, there will be some some stuff i mean the, the, the this is the situation we're in right now is just so different and so important and there's so much happening that that i will have to tie in more you know so, some of this stuff uh but generally today i want to talk about a an article like from time to time i want to want to take the time on on this podcast to go through uh, a text or something you know some idea somebody has and um go through it in detail and talk about it and i'll I'll probably gonna read you the full of the full article today and then i'm gonna just you know have breaks and talk about uh what what i think and the article we're talking about today is called the opt-out illusion it was written by a writer called katrina gulliver and published in the Times Literary Supplement in April 2019. So it's a bit older. I had missed it when it came out. I've I'd never seen this before, but I was made aware recently of this article. And I think um, it's it's very important. It's a it's a pretty cool article. It's pretty pretty good ideas in there. And um, yeah, let's let's dive right in just before uh, we get into the topic i just want to say as usual please uh, give me feedback on what you hear um, and go to privatecitizen.press which has show notes on everything i'm talking about uh, today about this article and my comments on it and there's there's uh, contact uh, information on there on how to contact me so please tell me uh, your thoughts on on what i'm talking about because i'm kind of you know this is a show where I, I talk into the ether so to speak and i don't have immediate feedback of somebody i'm you know i'm doing a show with um like i've, I've done in the past i've done uh generally podcasts with uh you know with another person there that i could bounce ideas off of and i don't have that so i'm kind of talking into the void and i like for stuff to come back so please if you have any input let me know. There are copious ways to get in touch with me. It's all on privatecitizen.press. 
But with that out of the way, let's talk about this article. So um, it's kind of a bit of a book review, I guess, but it's, I think it's, it's I'm probably going to read the book she talks about here. Um, but um, it's, I think it stands, um, I mean, it's a, the, the book she reviews is uh, The Age of Surveillance, Capitalism. Uh, by Shoshana Suboff, but I think the article stands pretty much on on its own. So um, let's let's get into what she says. I'm going to start reading uh, from this uh, this article in the Times Literary Supplement now. Um, it starts the film "The Life of the Others" from 2006, set in East Germany in the early 1980s, and features a government agent who spends his days wearing a headset listening to private conversations in the homes of suspected dissidents. He feels sympathy for his subjects and guilt for his actions. He knows that if he reports any sign of subversion, that person could be arrested. Today, we are all under similar surveillance, this time by Silicon Valley capitalists. They are not watching us for political dissent, but for our, quote, behavioral surplus, the crumbs of data about what we do, where we go, what we look at, what we buy. This surplus is used for the purposes of targeted advertising. It's made them billions and left many of us wondering how we got into this situation. And I, she had me right at the beginning because she is starting off by quote or talking about the film um, Das Leben der Anderen, or as the English title goes, The Life of the Others, uh, which stars... Probably my favorite German actor of all time, um, Ulrich Mühe, rest in peace. He died a few years ago. Who I got to know from a kind of a <laughs> the German version of CSI. I would you could say uh, it was very different than CSI, of course, because it was German. But he played like the coroner and the uh, so the investigator. Um, it was called um, Der Letzte Zeuge. So the the um, the the last um god why why don't why can't i can't translate wait pull up a dictionary people are shouting at their headphones the last witness um you know basically the dead body he was looking at the the dead bodies and it was an absolutely great show and this um movie uh the life of others is great if you haven't seen it you should watch it um it is it is is really good and I mean, what she talks about here is a pattern that I've often talked about on the show as well. Um, Silicon Valley, people in Silicon Valley knowingly or naively, doesn't really matter, um, are building technology that is increasingly um, being used to enslave all of us. She goes on in this article, um, in the age of surveillance capitalism, Shoshana Zuboff explains how. She's scathing about many of the main players. The executive Sheryl Sandberg is described as the typhoid Mary of the practice, carrying it from Google to Facebook. I, I love that typhoid Mary allegory, by the way. And um, if you look at Sheryl Sandberg's Wikipedia page, it says during her time at Google, she grew the ad and sales team from four people to 4,000. So she basically, under her auspices, um, she came up with the business model at Google uses, you know, using its, uh, you know, it's, I mean, it was a search engine in the beginning, but now it's really an advertising company. Um, anything it does is just to fuel 
to fuel its advertising business. And uh, according to this, obviously, Sandberg uh, then went to Facebook and brought this whole idea to Facebook, which I guess at the time was also not really making money, right? It was kind of like Twitter. Um, Facebook got out of this not making money hole a lot quicker than Twitter. And Twitter has always struggled with this advertising thing. But I think Facebook probably, this is to be believed because of Sheryl Sandberg, Facebook um, remastered this. Um, um, yeah, and uh, Katrina goes on in this in this uh, article. Mark Zuckerberg, in Zuboff's telling, seems temperamentally attuned to surveillance capitalism, either disinclined philosophically to believe in privacy as a value, or so bent on power he simply doesn't care. Zuckerberg suggested at the Crunchy Awards in 2013 that privacy was no longer a social norm. I remember that. And if you look at that video of him saying that, you can see that he believes it. It's not just the thing he says. It really looks like... I mean, problem with Zuckerberg is the guy's completely out of touch with normal people. Um, I think it's just the way from he built that thing in college and then just immediately got, you know, funding and got got rich at some point. And now, now he's just, he's out of tune. I mean, he said this thing once that everybody who eats meat, um, it's close to my heart because I'm, I'm a meat eater. <laughs> um, and, um, he said everybody who eats meat. Um, so what he does is like, he only eats meat that he's hunted himself. Kind of like Joe Rogan, I guess, does that too. Um, but uh, the difference between Joe Rogan is he suggested that everybody should do that. He was like, everybody should only eat the meat they hunted themselves. And you, you listen to that and you know that the guy's completely out of touch with normal people. Right? I mean, I, I would want to do that. I mean, if I could, I would do that. But I'm not rich. Where, like, I, neither do I have the time. Even if I had the time, where would I go hunting? It's not like, and it's not like everybody can do that, right? I mean, as soon as like... A thousand people in Hamburg want to hunt their own meat. It's like we don't have that many wildlife reserves. And, you know, there's not that then not that many animals to hunt. Uh, even if you would go with sheep or whatever, it would just it just doesn't work. Um, anyway, but going on in this uh, in this uh, article, in its lifetime, Facebook had fa has faced a series of privacy scandals starting with the Beacon Project in 2007, which, to much outrage, shared the details of a given user's purchases from stores that advertised on the platform with their entire list of, con list of contacts. Zuboff provides the account of one user who purchased an engagement ring. Um, Zuboff provides the account of one user whose purchase of an engagement ring was shared with his girlfriend and everyone he knew. Before he had the chance to propose... Zuckerberg apologized for the misstep, but the thinking behind Beacon remains central to Facebook's business model. Such privacy breaches have over the years led users to fight back. Google's Street View project, initiated in 2001, was met with some resistance. People balked at having an image of their home published online, let alone an image of them walking down the street. Google blurred faces, but many remained recognizable. Some blocked road access to Google's cars, others wore carnival masks or animal costumes when they knew the cars would be passing. Resistance hardened when it turned out that Google's vehicles were also mapping for Wi-Fi signals and noting passwords and other information. This was blamed on a rogue operative in programming, another, quote, mistake. 
Entire countries pushed back. Germany demanded residents be allowed to have their house blurred. Quarter of a million people made the request. And so Google abandoned the Street View project in Germany. It still runs, but images are not updated. Street View is also partly banned in Switzerland and Austria, restrict, restricted to tourist areas. And I mean, I talked about this as well recently. Um, Street View and like the outcry in Germany and like how far we've come from that, you know. Um, have to ring the uh, the coronavirus bell now. You know, cor- sorry, I'm gonna quickly talk about this, but you know. Germany now, politicians are demanding everyone who's suspected of carrying a certain disease should be tracked at all times. Uh, we have people installing network video doorbells. Um, you know, uh, Ring is the thing I'm going to spend some time on this podcast on uh, in the future as well. I already got that mapped out. Uh, and, you know, they're letting basically letting companies and the government spy on their own neighbors. And they're like, hey, they don't see my house. You know, they're they're like, okay, I I have friends who, I mean, they live in in the sticks, right? So for them, I was like, why are you getting a camera? Like, they can spy on you. They're like, oh, but they don't see our house, right? They just see the driveway. And I'm like, for me, that would be enough of a privacy violation to think about it. But um, but what they don't think about, I think everybody's like that. And they just buy buy a camera. They're like, well, it doesn't see my house. But they don't realize that their neighbor across the street also buys one. And then they can see your house. (laughs) Um, So they don't, they're not getting the complete, like this, you're only safe for this if everybody pushes back. And that's obviously not working. Um, Which, you know, we'll we'll come to with this article as well. Um, These are the exceptions. In 2009, John Hanke, then vice president for the company's mapping projects, told the Sydney Morning Herald, so it's Google Google Maps, uh, told the Sydney Morning Herald that concerns of street we had, quote, mostly died off in the West and remained an issue only in countries where the, quote, government is used to controlling everything, unquote. As Zuboff suggests, this is a clever pivot associating resistance not with civil liberties, but with totalitarianism. And Street View largely succeeded, with much of the world now mapped. As its creators predicted, we like it and use it. We are complicit victims. And this is, of course, bullshit, because like it's not like in Germany the government had photos of your house. Yes, they mapped everything. I mean, that's what we had like the mapping office for. <laughs> but like they, they didn't have pictures of your house. Um, one of Google's other surveillance-minded ideas, I think people have forgotten about this, was Google Glass. The enhanced spectacles left most consumers cold. Poor demand led to Google let Google to quietly drop them from its marketing strategy. I think she's actually wrong on this. I don't think it was poor demand. Um, I think, um, especially in Europe, um, because I you know I was working at um, Heiser at the time, and they um, they got like a Google Glass. I mean, you had to buy it like in the US, right, and bring it over. They weren't available in in Europe. And they, my colleagues said, or my ex colleagues. Back when they were my colleagues, they were like writing stories about Google Glass and how, um, how this like and this is way before GDPR. This is just like German privacy laws and like other European countries. And they were like how this was never gonna fly in in Europe. Like even before GDPR, you couldn't film somebody without their express permission, and they had to give you the permission beforehand. So you know, having basically Google Glass and walking around on the street you were basically immediately breaking all kinds of laws. And I think that's one of, actually one of the big uh, aspects why Google dropped 
But anyway, let's keep going with the article. Um, it seemed that the possibility of users live streaming everything around them hadn't struck a chord. When they were released to much fan fanfare in 2014, Google's co-founder Sergey Brin brushed off privacy concerns, telling the Wall Street Journal, quote, people always have a natural aversion to innovation, end quote. Another response to the apparent Luddites has been to argue that people shouldn't mind as long as they have, quote, nothing to hide. But nobody has nothing to hide. Zuboff argues that, quote, nothing to hide means being means being nothing at all. Having private histories and a place of sanctuary is, or was, a part of being human. I think it still is. Um, I think it still is. Uh, because these people who argue, like Zuckerberg, right, who argue that privacy is doesn't exist, that there's no human, like that, yeah, there's, you often hear this thing where it's like the new... Um, I don't know if it's the millennials or whoever is after the millennials is always, you know, the next generation is always set up as they, they don't have, they don't want any privacy. They don't have any privacy. They don't even know what it means. And I think this is completely wrong because people like Zuckerberg who say this are very private people, um, who are fight for their privacy. Like in, you know, look, look at the houses they live in. Like, can you go there? Can you see them? Can you see them in their home? They are very private people. They will fight uh, in, in courts for like if people take photos of them like in their backyard, right? I mean, how would Zuckerberg react if like somebody had a drone with a camera like flying across his house and then just filming him inside in the shower, right? Is he putting, is he posting pictures? Is he, does he have a live stream of his bedroom on the internet? Of course he doesn't. So there is this privacy there. Um we all need privacy. It it is a known, you know. There's there's psychological um, studies done about this, especially with, um, you know, when they do uh, torture. There's like lots of these torture techniques, you know, which is one is sleep deprivation, um, like blasting music at all times of the day, and one is just like robbing people of their dignity. That's how, like, when when you know these governments and, um, I mean, it goes back to probably before them, but like the Nazis had a big thing about this. Like this is a huge thing that happened in the Holocaust. Um, they took uh, people, they, um, they persecuted like Jews, um, Jewish people. They took their dignity away and that made it easier for the people like herding them into camps to see them as animals. Um, because if you don't have dignity, there's like this, tendency of human beings to see other human beings as as animals and you know privacy is a big part of dignity um i mean so <laughs> i had interestingly uh in a in a in a discord not the i, I don't think it w wasn't the show discord but another discord i'm in uh, there was this discussion about uh somebody said well um we don't like wearing uh i don't know what the discussion was about something Anyway, the, the post was like, basically, we don't like wearing um, clothes outside, uh, but we still do it, right? And see, I think that's wrong. I think we like wearing clothes. I think um, when, when society developed, there's a reason for that. There's a, you know, it's part of your human dignity. There's like, there's a certain, there are things in your life that you don't want others to see. And 
that's often branded as a bad thing, but I don't think it is. It's just part inherently part of our culture, very inherently. I mean, there are cultures who are not like that. Um, you know, uh, more like indigenous cultures and stuff like that. But I mean, this is part of our history as like, I'm talking as some new, new European now, um, you know, and we're talking America, you know, all the countries that were basically colonized by Europeans. Uh, we're talking, this goes back 3,000 years, 4,000 years. Um, I mean, we're talking the ancient Egyptians here, where, where, the, where this is, you know, this concept of privacy exists. It definitely exists in ancient Greece. Um, you know, there are differences. There's some stuff where they, you know, there were more public um, than we are today, but it is it is definitely a... Uh, well, she says a part of being human. Um, I, I don't want to say that because I think there is cultures that see this a bit differently. But I, I mean, I think every culture kind of has like, I think they just have a different uh, different approach to privacy. Um, but anyway, um, of course, there was humans before that was possible. Right? Before, like when we were all naked running around the steps. right? But um, going on. The age of surveillance capitalism is long, and Zuboff's blow-by-blow accounts of the key players ignoring, mocking, and finally riding roughshod over even governmental efforts to stop them are consistently shocking. The punishments meted out for incursions often seem trivial, given the company's power. For Google, a $100,000 penalty for infringing uh, for infringement of privacy is like an ordinary citizen being caught speeding and fined a penny. I've often said this, even back in the day when I was doing Linux Outlaws, and we would do, like, sometimes we'd do privacy stories on the side. And there was this was when the EU started, you know, steely neely, uh, started fining Google. And at first, like, people were like, oh my God, a million euros. That is so much money. And I was like, do you know how much money Google makes in a minute? <laughs> um, even back then, it's probably much more now. But it's like, this is ludicrous. Um, going on in her article here. Uh, in the EU, regulators have recently started to toughen up, however. Spurred by consumer activism and non-profit groups such as Austria's NOYB and, the f and following the institution of the GDPR, General Data Protection Regulation. In January, the French Data Protection Authority, CNIL, issued a fine of 50 million euros to Google for, quote, lack of transparency and, quote, lack of valid consent regarding the personalization of adverts. It may be that such rulings will produce lasting change, but we will have to wait and see. I think, see, I think, think even 50 million euros is just like, I mean, they re, it, I don't know if it doesn't, doesn't hurt google like it hurts the bottom line a bit but it's not like we're talking about their business model here i don't think it's enough money to dissuade them from a business model that works really well um and now we kind of come to the um the central point of of her argument here which is basically um, this works because the only chance these companies are giving us 
is like an all or nothing at all chance. This is where the where the title, the opt-out illusion comes in. For now, the system is set up to trap the user. We've all visited websites that confront us with a pop with pop-up. <clears throat> Sorry, we've all visited websites that confront us with a pop-up acknowledging our privacy and asking us to agree to the terms. But the pop-up won't let us pass without clicking agree. Opting out is an illusion. The extraction of our behavioral data is non-negotiable. To illustrate this bind, Zuboff describes one of the many, uh, quote, smart connected home devices now available, Nest thermostats. The data amassed by the device goes to Google service, and the user must agree to it uh, to its being shared with unnamed third parties for unspecified reasons. Should the consumer, uh, should the customer refuse, terms of service mean the thermostat may not work properly and will not be supported by necessary updates. You can say no, but that means you get a system that doesn't work, which that that's often how these things work, right? Um, in the EU, the GDPR directly obliges tech companies to inform users what data they are collecting. But this can still be confusing. We supposedly have control, but no cookies at all ever is not an option. I mean, that is... Um, yeah, there's some parts of this article that I don't agree with. I mean, there's a technical reason why that is not an option. Um, and you know, it seems a little bit, I don't know. Um, I don't want to, I don't want to be mean here, but it seems a bit like Gulliver doesn't understand how the internet works because very few websites, I mean, fab.industries is an example, work without cookies. I mean, you can run a website like that. Um, you probably, you know, if you have a news website without comments or something, you can run that. But like cookies are just the way to track state on the internet. That's just like the, we, the only other thing we have is get requests you can't it's well you can but it's like that's just the way it's a technical way how we track state so as soon as you have a login and as soon as you want to remember something for example about the user um, you need cookies that in itself isn't bad so cookies in itself are not bad at all the problem is they've been co-opted to track the user across the website and do all kinds of other stuff cross them across across the, the web and all of that. And yes, that is all a problem, but cookies itself as a technology aren't. Anyway, going on here, one outcome of the GDPR is that some American websites, such as the Los Angeles Times, have simply blocked access to visitors from European IP addresses rather than have to deal with the new rules. And that's the whole, you know, what I call all or nothing um, at all, like... Um, that's a that's a problem. That's the choice they give us. Um, and now now comes the kicker. Techno technological capability alone would not have been enough for these organizations to have achieved such dominance. Historical circumstances also played into their fortunes. By the time the dot com bubble began to deflate in two thousand, people were asking questions about tech firms' power, the firm's salvation, and the entrenchment in our lives came with the attacks of September 11th, Pro or 9-11. Uh, problems became blessings to gov governments scrambling to respond. Violation of privacy is useful if it helps us track down an Al-Qaeda operative. 
Quote, practices that just hours earlier were careening towards legislative action were quickly recast as a mission critical as mission critical necessities, end quote, writes, writes Zuboff. Governments co-opted the surveillance capitalists who were happy to oblige. And this is something, you know, I've, I've talked about before. Um, you know, I had this, uh, this episode, uh, God, now I have to look it up. I'm, I'm, you know, episode nine, I'm running into, I've, I've done so many episodes, I can't remember all of them, uh, which one was which, which I guess is a good sign. Episode three, so, you know, private sector surveillance bleeding into government. This is what we're talking about. Now, the interesting thing here is, um, does that, the thing I just read out, does that strike you as familiar? It should, because I have to bring up, uh, I have to bring up coronavirus once again. with that great uh, jingle from from no agenda <laughs> anyway um yeah i feel to bring to bring up coronavirus quickly because i mean the second wave is happening right now that is that is what's happening right now we're doing the same thing again as with 9-11 it's just emergency and suddenly the government scrambles and you know because it's an emergency everything's on the table and uh, we're doing the, it's deja vu. We're doing the whole damn thing over, over again. <sighs> anyway, um, she continues. Uh, Today, law enforcement agencies use Facebook to track suspects. Mobile phones um, are dreamed to security services, providing GPS data on almost anyone they want to investigate. And you know, we have I've, I've talked about this on this show. To illustrate surveillance capitalism's increasing symbiotic relationship with government, Zuboff cites the exchange between Google and the Barack Obama administration. During Obama's presidency, 22 White House officials went to work at Google, while 31 executives from Google and its subsidiaries joined the White House of Federal Advisory Boards. This version of, quote, regulatory capture, end quote, extends beyond Washington. Last so she's this Times of Resupplement, right? So the UK. Last year, Nick Clegg left politics to become Facebook's vice president for global affairs and communications. Um very interesting point. Um which I'd known because I've I've watched it, but I kinda lost lost um focus on that as well. I just find like it's it's very interesting how the media is like all over Trump and his White House staff. And um, this, when this happened during Obama administration, there were no reports on that. This, you know, the whole, I, I don't want to call it corruption because it might not be corruption. It might all be like legal, but it's like, it's borderline. It's like, you know, cooperation between the government and these corporations on a level that is just like shady as fuck. And, I, you know, I can kind of tell you why. I mean, my my feeling is you have to remember that the media generally, not not everybody, but generally, they're complicit because that's this is their business model as well. They live off advertising. Um, they are, or for quite a while, they were hostile to Google, 
because Google was stealing like their ads, but now they're on the internet and they kind of have to um, go hand in hand with Google. And it's, you know, even if they don't like Google, they can't really attack their business model. They can't really attack tracking and, you know, because they're working hand in hand with these guys to make their money. Because, I mean, I'm not saying they're evil. I'm not saying like journalists are evil in general. It's not the journalists as well. It's like the guys running the publications and stuff like that. And they're not evil. They, they're, the problem is they're, they, they were making a lot of money um, from advertising in the print space. And when they went online, um, I mean... The, they were making a lot of they were making money from subscription as well, so it was like a dual model. But when they went online, they had this problem that people didn't want to pay for their stuff. They didn't want to pay for that stuff, so they went all in on advertising. And it's kind of like it's a little it's it's kind of the people's fault as well. Because nobody didn't nobody wanted to pay um for journalism online. This is why we are in the shitter that we are right now. And now it's kind of hard to get out of it. Um, now it's even, I mean, I've worked at a place where they were trying to t transition like everybody else in the industry, trying to transition from advertisement driven models to having people pay for it, which is a, I mean, a much better model. I mean, that's the reason I don't have advertisements on this podcast and I kind of asked the listeners to, you know, to become producers and pitch in. Um, but it, it was so hard. Like in these, they they were afraid. So even when they had like a portal, and this was you know this is going on all throughout the industry. I saw this at several places. Um, this was kind of a time when I was uh, already uh, I knew I was going to jump ship, and I was looking. I was visiting other places, and for a while I decided I I wasn't quite sure if I would have the balls to become a freelancer. And I was, so I was looking at other places, and I mean even with the idea of becoming a freelancer was kind of cool because you get contact and all of that. Um, but, you know, I saw it everywhere. They are at the moment where they're like, okay, we've got to transition this, this thing or we're building this thing um, for people to pay us for the content. The people obviously wanted that without advertising. All readers wanted that. That was clear. Anytime you asked anybody, they were, I mean, they were actively shouting for that in the forums and, and just everywhere. And it, just the most people, most of these uh, publishing companies didn't do it because they were afraid to piss off the advertisers. They were like, this is a new model. Um, we still make all of our money from the advertising, basically, uh, or a lot of money. And we can't, we can't transition. Like if we do that and then have like a big new thing without advertisers, all the advertisers are going to run amok and we're going to lose their money. And then if the people, if, if we figure out the people are not, not ready yet to pay for it, then we're done because then we screwed both business models. And so nobody had, had the balls to take the leap. Of course, it didn't help that if people like smaller companies earlier had the balls and leapt. And that was a time, you know, like five, six, seven years ago when it just wasn't there yet. People wouldn't like pay for it and that was just not enough money and they all died and became bankrupt so that that didn't help but you know we're kind of we kind of built this uh problem ourselves and i think 
pretty much like what we're talking about here with the surveillance capitalism. It's all like tied together. Um, we need to, if we want to pull us, ourselves out of this, then the first step is to 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 recognize the problem, right? So I've been um, okay. A little little side tangent here. I've recently started watching um, UFC. I was always kind of interested in, in, in mixed martial arts. And um, I just never did, like, pay-per-view or whatever. I always just watch wrestling, like, you know, WWE. And um, Adam Curry was on Joe Rogan, and I never really watched, listened to Joe Rogan. I know about it, like, obviously, amazingly successful podcaster, but I never really listened to his stuff. And so I, I listened to him and I really liked that interview and I started listening to his shit and he was going on about MMA. So I started watching UFC and um, I've, this is amazing to me how intelligent these people are. You know, you have this, uh, you have this prejudice that these guys are just like, they just beat each other up for money. Right. And they stand there for 25 minutes and they, some of them really they just, beat each other up until somebody knocks somebody out you're like this is not good for their brain like and you think they're dumb because like if you grow up like me with like football what the americans would call soccer um these guys if you get them you know, get a football player in front of a microphone they're just like oh yeah we won they're not the most intelligent people generally but these mma guys like some of them are comedians they're like really sharp anyway the point i wanted to make is i listened to um an interview with israel adesanya uh who is currently uh the uh lightweight uh, ufc lightweight champion um he's um he's called like um his 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 nickname is, is the last style bender you might have heard of this anyway he's a he's a really smart dude and he was giving this interview i think it might have even been a, like a joe joe rogan um uh um, uh, sorry, he's, he's, I was just looking that up. He's middleweight champion. Anyway, he's, I, I can never get used to that guy being middleweight. He looks so thin. <laughs> anyway, um, I think it was on draw. Anyway, he was talking about um, how he became so good. And like, obviously lots of work and training, but he was like, he was saying, so the most important thing is you fight. It doesn't matter. It's like, it doesn't matter what you do, but you, you do something and then the first step to getting better, this sounds like really easy, but I think it's really intelligent. Um, you, need to, you need to figure out what you're doing wrong. And even if you're winning, he's, like, he's, he's really successful. It's like, even if I'm winning, I look at my fights again and I look at what I'm doing and I try to get better. And the first step is I need to identify where my problems are. And he's like, yeah, I watched that fight. I won that fight, but I can see, like, he's hitting me there, and he's hitting me there, and he's hitting me there. And I'm like, why is he hitting me? Like, it would be better if he wasn't hitting me at all. And then he's like, okay, now I need to, um, what I need to do is in my next fight, whenever this situation comes up, I need to be sure not to be there. Like, my head can't be there because he's hitting me. And he says, you know, he does that consistently. He gets better and better. And I think that is a way we all need to approach our lives with. And stuff like this. Stuff like privacy. Stuff like, um, you know, journalism. It It's no use complaining about how shit journalism is day in and day out, which a lot of people are doing, 
um, you know, and I'm for I'm I'm for criticizing the media, but the point is we need to identify where the problem is and when we need to figure out what we can do to fix it. And yeah, sometimes it's down to our personal level. And you know, if there's something um I've never believed in like boycotts, you know, where people are like or like change.org petitions and stuff like that. But you can improve your personal life. If you're like this the news I'm getting is shit. Try to analyze where you're getting news from. Why are they shit? And then figure out what you can do. Like, I don't know. I'm not a I'm not a fan of The Guardian per se. But let's say you're in the UK and you figure out, hey, I could subscribe to them, you know, and and get better stuff or whatever. I mean, I I'm not a fan of paywalls, but if if you can, you know, if you can trade a little bit of money. Uh, every week to improve that situation i think that's good and if more people do that then maybe we'll fix it i mean this is why i believe in this model i have for this podcast that's the it's the same approach i feel like if this helps you and you're like hey wow i've just learned something i, I had no idea who israel adesanya was and maybe that's interesting you can you can help out like and if you give me a euro a month which for you probably isn't that much for me, if 10 people do that, that's like 10, pe- 10 euros a month. For me, that is better than zero euros a month, you know? And if a few people do that, it actually improves my situation and I keep can keep doing this. And I think the same thing, we have to have that same approach to privacy and to this whole... Um, first thing we need to do, right? So basically, Google and Facebook are the guys across from us right in the ring or in the octagon and they're coming at us right they're coming at us we, we we see we see the jab the jab is coming when google releases a new product or whatever they're releasing google glass we see the jab coming and then we need to analyze what's going to happen next what are they doing what is their um what's their game here right what's th- the jab isn't the only thing the jab is there to set up like something else maybe a kick or a right hook uh you know we need we need to figure out what that game plan is and we will get hit right we'll this won't be like i when i look back at these things i'm talking about i was laughing at google maps i was laughing about germans uh pixelating the house you can get probably uh, 50 snippets from linux outlaws episodes from 50 different episodes where i'm laughing at the germans because they're so stupid with their privacy so i got hit back in the day the problem is you need to i've i've learned it's taken me 10 years but i've learned things and this is why i'm doing this this podcast now i'm trying you know i'm trying to you know, you you have to you have to basically watch back your previous fights and see where you got hit like ten years ago and now today, because this shit keeps going. We have to analyze what they did at nine eleven, and then now with Corona, we can we can see the patterns because they're always the same patterns. Uh, Stylebender talks about this as well. Like it's all seeing patterns. You analyze somebody and you analyze the way he fights and its patterns. And if you got that down, then you can sidestep him, right? And you can keep him guessing and you can move around. And then he doesn't know where your hat is. And then you'd go, bam, you know, it's kick, kick his head from out of nowhere. We kind of need to do that. We kind of need to jujitsu Google, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, uh, I got way in the woods with this me- me- metaphor. Let's wrap up this article. Um, so, 
back to uh, Katrina Gulliver. Where were we? God. Um, Zuboff. So this we're, we're talking about Nick Clack uh, becoming Facebook's vice president. You know, the tie-in with Obama and Google. Zuboff draws a distinction between Apple and Microsoft on the on the one hand, and Facebook and Google on the other. Apple and Microsoft are selling us tangible goods. Facebook and Google are offering us their services for free. We're not their customers. A common quip is that, quote, if it's free, you're the product. Zuboff corrects this. We are the raw material. Our behavior, behavioral data is the product. We are the refuse of resource extraction. I actually don't agree with the Apple and Microsoft comment because I think historically, if you've been around, like me, and you've seen this shit through the 90s, um, Apple and Microsoft were just historically really bad at building web products. And then they saw what Google was doing, and then they were really shit at you know, figuring out search and advertising. And they're getting there. And yes, they primarily, well, sell you tangible goods. Microsoft, not really. And not anymore. That's you know, it's all as a service. Um, but even Apple, like I've always said for years on Linux Outlaws, I mean, I had a the first phone I had was an iPhone. I was still saying, look, the only reason Apple isn't doing this is because they haven't figured out how you can't trust the corporation if they're saying we're different. We're different than Google. As a point where Apple gets the opportunity to go all in, you know, let's say I don't know. Let's say Elizabeth Warren becomes president and enacts like a plan to completely crush Facebook and Google, like literally wipe them out, destroy them, blow them off the face of the earth. Microsoft and Apple will jump in. They will see that market. They will be in the position, maybe Amazon as well, but like, you know, they will be there. And that will be there, will take over that business model and all this. Oh no, we're Apple, we're just selling you. Uh, great hardware and we're really good with your privacy all that will be forgotten you know like google's do no evil is just wiped off the face of the planet um the author is something else i disagree with by the way the author reminds us of, of karl marx's image of capitalism as quote a vampire that feeds on labor but she perceives quote, an unexpected turn. Instead of labor surveillance, capitalism feeds on every aspect of every human's existence. Um, I think it's actually really problematic to invoke Marx here. Um, I just want to just want to say that, make that point here, because quoting Marx is always problematic because Marx is immediately seen in the context of trying to abolish capitalism. And I haven't talked about this on this podcast, but like a huge pet peeve of me is like late stage capitalism. That is just like very dangerous talk because what you're saying is it's going to fall and we're going to have, it's often Americans and they say we're going to have socialism because they don't know what socialism means. Um, but it's like, let's, let's not get into that. Let's just talk about abolishing capitalism is clearly not the answer. And Gulliver knows this or must know this because her text begins with quoting Das Leben der Anderen, which is a movie that is set in Eastern Germany. And the problem is, historically, 
every single every single government in history that's tried to implement Marx and Engels' ideas of how we like abolish capitalism has ended up as a totalitarian surveillance state. I mean, there are tons of examples. You know, Soviet Russia, East Germany, uh, China, Cuba. You know, they're all totalitarian surveillance state and i personally think having studied history for a while and like especially this epoch of like you know um the uh the 20th century uh and you know the 19th and 20th centuries um i think the problem is like explicitly the dictatorship of the proletariat which is this idea in so in marx and engels they were saying capitalism is bad for reasons and you know they're good reasons um, so what we need is we need to rest, uh, r like wrench the, um, the tools of, cr of labor. So this is all based on the industrial revolution and workers and factories, wrench the tools of production from the capitalists. The capitalists are the people who run the factories, who don't work themselves, who make money of making money, basically. And we take that over, we take over the factories and the workers run the, st and run the state. And that is like... You have capitalism, you have the revolution, then you have the dictatorship of the proletariat, where the workers basically run everything, and that will turn into communism. And then the thing that, you know, that most, pretty much nobody you ever hear talk about this um, in America, like in the press, I they don't understand this. So the end goal is socialism. Socialism is a utopia where everybody, um, now I'm explaining it anyway, but okay. Um, socialism is an utopia where people only do what they want to do. So Marx and Engels were basically saying people like to work. They just don't want to get exploited. And we need a society where everybody does what they want to do and that society will work. Now to get to that stage, which which is utopia, which is like, actual socialism as like mostly Engels envisioned it has never you know the the, the GDR the East German uh, you know social democratic um, uh, you know German democratic republic um, has said it was a socialist state but it was not a socialist state um, it was at all if at all a communist state so communism is a a state before socialism when you're basically okay so now the the uh the workers run everything and you know this was all like marx and engels were all theories um but then you had people like trotsky and lenin uh, and later of stalin of course um they were implementing this in russia and communism was like okay now we need to okay we are the workers we run the state and now we need to organize everything, like, in communes, right? So that was the thing, like, okay, let's, I mean, Stalin very controversially, um, you know, moved all the farmers into communes, all the starvation and all that happened because of that. But that is not the end goal. So the end goal of the Soviets, as they saw it, and, you know, was to to reach socialism in the end. Where you have a state, <clears throat> the state of being where everybody in that state just does whatever they want to be. Like, I, if I like doing podcasts, I would do podcasts and people would get information. But, there would, you know, I need to eat bread. And there would be people who like baking and they would become bakers. 
Um, the problem is that this has never worked. And I think my pro I, I think a big reason is the dictatorship of the proletariat, because it is a dictatorship. So, and dictatorships have this inherent um, problem that the people who are dictators, even if they are the workers and your peers, they never want to get let go of that power. So you will never get, like communism you'll get, because communism is still, you know, can be run under totalitarianism you know under under can, can be run by these dictators who, who might actually be coming from the proletariat the funny thing about the soviet uh, revolution of course was that nobody of them was actually workers <laughs> there's like one guy <laughs> who, who was actually a worker but all of these guys like you know um lenin uh there were writers I, I mean lenin was a journalist um stalin even worse stalin was like a robber baron right Stein, uh, no no robber baron he was like a gangster basically um like he was a he was a professional revolutionary uh he went to like a, a monk's con convent and then just got kicked out uh for reading books he wasn't allowed to re uh, read and then he just became a professional revolutionary these people weren't workers but anyway so it wasn't really i mean they weren't also weren't the proletariat they were the uh intelligentsia really but anyway but this this dictatorship doesn't work um, I mean, you, you will never get rid of this dictatorship once you have it without overthrowing the state completely. So that's why you never, in my opinion, you never go from this, um, from that state to the utopia where everybody just does what they want to be, you know, want to do. And everybody works this out in harmony because you have a dictator at the top and dictatorships are always aim, aiming at keeping guys who are on top, stay on top. And socialism, as Marx and Engels kind of envisioned it, would be like a meritocracy. And it wouldn't be like always the same people in charge. It would depend on what the situation is, right? If if you have, if you're all organizing yourselves and we're all like in little communes and we're all organizing everything and then something like coronavirus comes along, then you would have the medical doctors, they would, they would become take charge right they, they, everybody would see well this is our danger now we have to ask the people who know about this and they would take charge and in reality this, this never happens because the people in power want to stay in power but anyway i'm bit i'm a bit sorry about the political uh excursion here but i think this is is really bad um quoting Marx here because our our um our goal here, so if if we are trying to defeat surveillance capitalism, I strongly believe our goal cannot be to abolish capitalism, because we do not have a, we do not have a system that can replace it. We don't we don't have a system that works. And if you're from the US and you're listening to this, I mean you can you I mean there are people shouting at their at their phones right now. Um, I believe write me write me you know private citizen press contact data write me I, i'm i'm happy to hear you out i'm just saying talk to somebody who lived in eastern germany right talk to talk to a russian guy you know who lived in the soviet era and ask them about how well that system worked and they will they will give you an earful anyway um this at the end gulliver here continues um few, few of us um so she, she was talking about marx Capitalism now not being a vampire that feeds on labor, but being a vampire that feeds on every aspect of the human existence. Uh, going on, few of us can escape this level of surveillance. Every non 
Even non-users of Facebook are tracked by it with cookies on other sites. Well, yes. Uh, but if you really don't have a Facebook account, mm, they're kind of tracking you, but they don't have that much information. But anyway, um, never mind using a VPN. We are still ensnared by our phones. Convenient, uh, convenient systems. Sorry, I need, I need some Earl Grey here. Convenient systems operated by voice commands. Earl Grey helps. Um, maybe listen maybe listening to us when we're not using them. There's actually a story about um, digital assistants that came up, which I'm going to talk about in the future probably. Turning off apps does not protect us. Even switching off the phone and removing the SIM is not enough to prevent tracking. Um, she is kind of right, especially when you now have the government who just mandates you clicking on a link so they can see that you haven't left your home. Um the deeper story is our acquiescence with this situation, our bowing, bowing to what Zuboff characterizes as surveillance capitalism's sense of, quote, inev inevitability. We feel helpless to resist before the march of, quote, progress. So what can we do? Every privacy breach scandal is followed by a mealy-mouthed apology, and then things go back to where they were. Zuboff draws a comparison with the Gilded Age, a period of intense in inequality that taught people how they didn't want to live quote how they didn't want to live reform and eventually the new deal followed she, she suggests the age of surveillance capitalism is also showing us how we do not want to live and what we must resist uh, and that we must resist the advance towards a new status quo dictated by tech giants surveillance capitalism is not a foregone conclusion we have the capacity to quote reclaim the digital future as humanity's home and I think she's completely right on this. I mean, I, I um, criticized her on a few points here, but I mean, generally, this is a great article, great book review. I probably have to read that book. Um, but um, she's completely right. I, I agree with her. And I mean, people who are into open source know that the, the, this um, this one stream that comes off, out of Silicon Valley isn't the only way to go. There was another stream, you know, Richard Stallman, the FSF, uh, the EFF, they're all like these hippies, call them that, and they developed open source. And there's a there's a movement worldwide now where like open source is, uh, I mean that's a software development movement, but by the culture it perpetuates, there are people there that are creating, um, creating um a culture, and you know, with their software, basically, you know, launch less a code is law, building building ideas where privacy is also the focus. And I think, you know, we know that there are other ways. And as I said, you know, be Stylebender, see it coming, see what they're doing. It's the first step. They're attacking you, and this is all of us. We need to see what they're doing. We need to analyze it. And I, I feel like without even realizing it, you know, I've developed this idea just on this podcast. This is not something I've written down anyway. Um, without realizing it, I started this podcast and I said in the last episode, I feel like I started it at the right time. And I feel so even more now because I feel like um, that's what I'm, why I'm doing this show. Because I want to see, I want to tell you about the patterns that I see and that other people see, um, you know. 
and that we together can see. And like in this case, Katrina Gulliver or, you know, whoever uh, uh, Shoshana Zuboff wrote that book. Like these people see patterns. I want to look at them and I want to analyze them and tell you about it. And this is the big thing about being producers and writing me because I want your input. I want to know how you see that. And then we can all learn together and help each other out. Like maybe I know I see something in their attack and then, you know, I see the jab and what, what they're doing with the right hook. And then you're like, no, 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 that's wrong. They're saying that, you know, there's a leg kick coming. I can, this, you know, there's an outside leg kick coming. I could see that they're setting that up and then we can all help each other. So that's why I was uh, talking about this article today, and I, I hope uh, that's uh, helped you out. And with that, I think we should start uh, to end the show and uh, head over to the feedback section. So um, with the feedback here, I have to play. I have to play a Corona jingle here just to warn everybody. Because obviously, feedback. This is a reaction to the uh, one of the last episodes, so can't avoid that topic. Uh, thanks again to No Gender and their amazing producers uh, <laughs> for that for that jingle. Um, I had Steve Hose sending me a message on Patreon with you know some really good boots on the ground information from the US. He's in the US, and I, I shortened this a little bit, but I'm I'm just gonna read this out now. Um, he says. First, you've been pronouncing my name well, Hose. I've been told it's a Dutch last name, even though we came from Prussia in 1850-ish. Well, that could be still, you know, uh, especially 1850, Prussia, um, you know, Prussia, traditionally uh, Eastern Germany, um, parts of what are now Poland, and then, of course, Berlin. But, like, in uh, in the 1800s, Prussia got like the Rhine provinces and they got lots of provinces in the West G Germany. So um, the university I went to, uh, Bonn University, was founded in 1815 because when the Prussians took over the Rhineland, which was traditionally a very Catholic region, um, they, Prussians are, you know, the Prussians were famously Protestant. Um, they closed down the uh, university in Cologne, which is a very cath Catholic uh, university, and took the, I think the bishop... Uh, the Bishop of Cologne had a palace in Bonn and they took that palace and took it away and, you know, made a part of the state and made a university out of it. So it could be that they're just from pressure from, you know, the Rhineland or that area, you know, with West Germany, which is very intermingled with, with Dutch. So if you, where I am in Hamburg, if you go to the West a bit, you know, there's um, East Frisia, which uh, is a German province and then West Frisia. Oh, sorry. Just, I'm 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 drawing a map here with my hands and I'm banging into the mic, um, and West Frisia is in in the Netherlands, so you know uh, that maybe that makes sense. Anyway, he, uh, continuing, he says four brothers, three wheelwrights, and a violin maker settled in South Bend, Indiana. That's uh, Buttigieg, Pete Buttigieg's uh, town, isn't it? Uh, Indiana State Hoosiers. I guess that's a thing. I looked that up on Wikipedia. That's weird. <laughs> anyway, I uh, I live in Orange County, California, home of Disneyland. 
we have three levels of restriction. So this is, I asked, you know, how's your, how's, how's your curfew? <laughs> this is the new segment. How's your curfew? Um, we have three levels of restrictions. Federal, the smallest, unless they use FEMA. State, medium, but has the use of National Guard troops to help out. Um, the, the state closes schools with the assistance of local authorities, but they have the power of the purse. New York is using National Guard troops to deliver food, for example. And then we have the county restrictions. The county has a health inspector, which can and has closed restaurants to dining, but not takeout. They can probably close your barber, nail shops and spas too. I'm not sure. I can go to the grocer, grocer, hardware store and bank for now. My wife and kids have had haircuts canceled until further notice. Yeah, my wife too. And I'm not getting a hairdressing appointment. You know, I'd, my haircut's not conducive to <laughs> going four weeks without a hairdressing appointment. It's going to get vicious, man. If this keeps, um, I might just grow dreadlocks again and say, fuck it. <laughs> anyway, um, so Steve continues. My question is this. Should we borrow slash print $3 trillion and destroy the world economy to save sixty to save the 60 plus people? And, you know, from what I've looked at in last episodes, more like 70 plus people probably. Uh, my brother who's 61 thinks not. He's more worried about that what this will do to the world for his kids and grandkids. He says the olds care for themselves as much as possible and let the young get on with their lives. I am 44 and I kind of agree. Uh, I just thought that was interesting. Thank you, uh, Steve, for that perspective. Nice to see how that, you know, just compare. Basically, the restrictions seem to be the same. Like they're in Germany, pretty much. Like it's different systems, but in the end, it's the same thing. You know, and somebody writing from the Czech Republic basically the same thing. The only country that isn't doing that, apparently, which I'm going to look into for the future, for another, I mean, there will be coronavirus episodes uh, coming. I'm actually um, looking to release, so don't don't hold me to this, but if there's a new episode comes out over the weekend, I have a little special episode I've, I've recorded. Um, I'm working on, I've recorded some of it uh, already. Um, yeah, don't don't be surprised. I'm currently I'm just pushing out a lot of stuff because there's lots of coronavirus stuff and it's I think it's very interesting and it's developing very fast. So I just want to kind of keep with the flow. Um, I I will keep with the Wednesday release thing and I, I will release an episode every week. It's just you know you could get more. I mean, do you complain? Are you complaining? I hope not. Um, if you want to complain, private citizen press. Uh. Anyway, the only uh, country that I kind of feel like is not doing that is Sweden. Uh, so apparently they're doing something different, which is kind of cool. Um, I've never traditionally been a fan of the way the Swedes do things, but this seems very reasonable. Anyway, I might do an episode on that at some point. Um, yeah, so uh, thanks to Steve again for writing in. Uh, producer Steve. Uh, telling me things that's really cool if you also want to do that um, you can contact me link is in the show notes uh, privatecitizen.press and with that as I alluded to early in the podcast if you feel like you got something from this uh, consider supporting the podcast if you aren't doing that already um, you can become patron on patreon or you can just send money via paypal all the details and why I'm doing this link to what the value for value model is where it came from it's all in the show notes privatecitizen.press and uh 
that is the show for today. I don't want to say for this week, because as I alluded to, there might be another episode coming out. Um, the only thing I have to do now is thank everybody uh, who helped out, who pitched in, who's been involved. And I'd like to diligently do this. Uh, so if I ever forget somebody here, uh, please yell at me, write me an email or whatever. Um, so at first I need to credit uh, the uh, artist who uh, recorded and wrote the song Acoustic Roots, which is the theme to this podcast. That is uh, Raul Kebazali. And um, also I would, would like to thank ByteMark at ByteMark.co.uk, which is a great hosting company. Speaking of that song, by the way, let's start playing that in. Um, ByteMark, great hosting company. They provide the server that sent you this audio file. Uh, which is something I couldn't do the show without. So thanks to them. And then thanks to all the people who have um, pitched in and uh, are supporting this show monetarily on either on Patreon or via PayPal. And that's Niall Donegan, Michael Mullen Jensen, Jonathan M. Hathi, Georges Walther, Dave Kai Sears, Matt Jalleman, Fadi Mansour, Joe Poser, Rashid Alimani, Mark Holland, Steve Hose. Butterbeans, Shelby Kruver, Vlad, Dave Umrish, IKN, Vitautas Sadowskis, Ricky M, and Drive Zero. Thanks to all of you, and um, I'll see you for the next episode. Stay free and stay private out there. Be a wolf. Don't be part of the sheep.